You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedian's Comedian Podcast. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Thanks for downloading the show. This is the glorious 50th episode. Who who would have believed we would get this far? And who better to spend it with than the smartest man in the world, Mr. Greg Proops. Hiya. Hello, everybody. So, Greg... Thank you so much for coming. Uh, how is your uh, how's your Edinburgh experience going this year? It's going real well. I'm enjoying myself. We've had uh, massive tech uh, fuck ups and uh, and airless boxes for uh, rooms. So it's okay. it's just par for the course. Classic. It's been great. When I saw your show in the here in the Gilded Balloon, your stand up show the other night, you were there's a, an air conditioner either side of your stage, yeah. and you spend the show moving from standing in front of one to the other. Yes. <laughs> the staging of my show has been elaborately choreographed. Uh, <laughs> Dictated only by the uh, the fact that there's no air in the room and that it's a <coughs> it's like the black hole of Calcutta. So yeah, the, they've decided to put air conditioning in the venue to make it more comfortable. So they put it on the stage behind the curtains on the sides, which is fantastic. So the curtains are delightfully cool through the whole show. <laughs> the audience is boiling like a chicken McNugget, and so uh, I just wander from air conditioner to air conditioner. Tonight I'm having a fan put on, so I'll have a third station of the cross I can land at. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in your uh, in your show, which I thought was fantastic, I thought it was very funny. A lot of people. I'm here, sure you did. It. Yeah, <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. Thank you, Stu. <laughs> um, but I wondered how much of it was improvisation and how much of it is pieces that you've written because it seemed like I I, I felt like we were sort of ten or fifteen minutes into it. I was like, is he is he just making all this up? Because this is like really gag heavy. I mean, there was loads and loads of laughs, and yet it was so casual and conversational. I, I was interested in, in trying to pick apart how much of your shows are, how much of your stand-up shows are pre-written and how much are improvised. Well, I have material, and I've memorized some of it. And uh, when I remember it, I tell it. That's my promise to the audience. Uh, when I don't remember it, I try to make it up. So this year, for the stand-up, I didn't want to do a bunch of stuff I did last year, but I'm having to anyway. And so I'm trying to make a... Thank you. Why, why, why do you say you're having to? Well, because uh, I, I, did a, I just recorded a, um, a comedy video in Los Angeles about a month ago. And uh, at a place called Musso and Frank's, it's a very old school restaurant, like a place where Bogart used to go and Faulkner and Robert, uh, Robert Mitchum and whatnot. It's a, it, okay. it, they open at 11 and it's a very drinky place. And like Chandler wrote The Big Sleep in a booth there, you know. Okay. So it was my manager's idea to do it in this old fashioned restaurant, which is a real old fashioned place that serves like kidneys and steaks and chops, you know, really old school. So yeah, I made a bunch what, of... What we would consider food. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the entrails of food, which is what you people eat. And... Um, <laughs> And when I say you people, I mean to be diminishing and, uh, and elevate myself on the back of your awful. So uh, both spellings. And uh, so uh, I did it in this place and I had to do a lot of material about like, uh, uh, you know, Hollywood then a little bit. And then I told this long drug story about working for a meth dealer, which I don't know if you, I told that the other night when you were there, but yeah. holy cow. Um, and, and that's a true story. And then I had this other, other material about going to restaurants and all this trendy food. And I'm finding that some of it doesn't work as well here. So I'm dropping stuff and putting stuff in. I'm okay. also trying to write stuff now because, you know, we got this week in the news, Bradley Manning, uh, uh, Ed, uh, Snowden, um, uh, the State Department issued a warning for American safety abroad. And I was like, I'm in Edinburgh, you guys. Uh, one in the morning in the grass market in a chip shop. The State Department can't save me. <laughs> There is no safety they can guarantee. So I'm trying to work all that in and uh, add to the, you know, the mad amount of Edinburgh material. I'm trying to write new Edinburgh material while I'm here. So the first 10 or 15 minutes I try to come out and do a few that I know and then riff a few. And, uh, you know, as my wife, who always gives me very good advice about all comedy, says, why don't you have fun? Uh, and I'll be like, <laughs> because it's easier as a comic to be miserable and worry. 
So sure. uh, yeah. I try to get out there and have fun. So I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, probably 20 or 30% is riffed. Like last night, she gave me one because there was a video of a, a drunk guy at Waverly Station in a kilt trying to kick a pigeon. But he's so drunk. Yes, I laugh too. He's so drunk that he misses the pigeon and falls onto the train tracks, right? And, and the, <laughs> I said... Just because you're wearing a skirt like Judy Garland doesn't mean you can fly, okay? <laughs> you have to understand that the bird has the gift of flight, and then it will get away from you, you drunk idiot. That's your miscalculation in that regard. So, uh, uh, so, I, so can, we can we expect from your show over the next, you say you're here for another two weeks. Yeah. Can we expect it, that it will kind of, it will move and change and grow throughout that time? Because I noticed the show I saw, you mentioned the, the Trayvon Martin verdict, the Bradley Manning verdict. You mentioned it in a sort of summation at, at the end. Yeah. Is, is that something that will, that will unpack and you'll get more out of that over the Hopefully. run? Yes, when I figure out how to make those two heinous subjects funny, then uh, then yes, mm. it will. I'll, I'll be adding those as we go along. Uh, I'm thinking of cartoons, maybe illustrations at this point. <laughs> in, in, uh, to ask more more seriously, I mean that, yeah. that is something that, you, that you're known for doing. You're hugely culturally literate and culturally voracious, and and you also through uh, your podcast as well as your stand up, you are very connected to the news and to topical material. How do you go about? making something as awful as the Bradley Manning verdict, say. How, how do you go about attacking that from the perspective of a, a comic? Well, I mean, I, I, for me, it's always uh, you have to talk to power because uh, uh, Bradley Manning, in my opinion, is a defenseless serviceman who was uh, at the lowest level of the service uh, uh, who did what he thought was right. Now, he served in Iraq, and what he exposed was that um, uh, we were killing civilians there, and uh, as well as lots of other things. The government, of course, made him an enemy, kept him naked in a cell for mm. weeks, which is against we have we used to have a constitution uh, before Bush used it for toilet paper and then Obama used it for sledding and uh, so but there's things called you know cruel and unusual punishment and I think keeping someone naked in a cell who's a member of the armed forces we're supposed to remember how we love the troops in America and the troops are the most important thing in the world and doesn't everyone love the troops except that we treat them like shit and then when we arrest them we put them naked in a cell uh, and treat them like an emony an emony we treat them like an anemone or any <laughs> other sea creature uh, like an annelid worm. Uh, so for me, it's a matter of like, Bush isn't in jail. Uh, they put, they're going to put Bradley Manning in jail for 100 years for telling the truth. Bush and Blair, who didn't tell the truth ever about what happened in Iraq, um, instead they gave Bush a library, which is hilarious. Uh, because when he walks by libraries, books get angry and burst into flame. <laughs> So, okay, well, let, let's take that. So is that this idea about books walking past, just to, to zero in on, the, on the, sort of the, the creative process, is that something you've just thought of now that you've just No, it's books? a joke I recycled from an old routine uh, about Jessica Simpson, to give real technical about it. <laughs> I wrote Thank a, you for being so honest. Thank you. Nine <laughs> years ago, I wrote a Jessica Simpson routine that went, it was about a 15-minute routine about her when she was first on television with her, her husband at the time, Nick Lachey, before she was the millionaire designer that she is now. Uh, so she proves that people with no mind whatsoever can become wildly successful and rich, which is why I refuse to venerate the rich all the time. People are always like, oh my God, you can't argue with success and look, they're really rich. It's <laughs> yeah. like, idiots are rich. <laughs> Jessica Simpson couldn't put two and three together. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, that was a routine about her because I would say she had a thought and her thought was she's eating buffalo wings with her husband and she goes, how, uh, how, how come their wings are so small? And that was where I yeah, like, okay, yeah. the whole, that would okay. make you believe that buffaloes enjoy the gift of okay. flight. Okay, so, but, but just, so just to zero in on that, even if sort of cannibalized from a previous material, let, just to take that specific idea, is that something you sat down with a notepad or in front no. of a computer and wrote the, the books? It came into my head frame. that it would save the joke and that if I needed a Bradley Manning joke this week, I could do that one. I haven't done it yet, but it yeah. will work and uh, 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 but what I need to do is find the key to the Bradley Manning one for me it's a matter of sitting around and thinking about it I lay in bed and I think about it I, I don't sit at a, at a piece of paper as much as uh, I'll lay in bed and think how can I make this funny and then I get on stage and try to riff it and then it's a matter of like do you give it a voice as a character do you make it a scene uh, do you try to make it a bunch of one liners um, in the podcast I can do all those things and the trick is uh, the difference is the, in the podcast I can go a little slower and I can be way more serious in a stand-up show I think the demand for LPMs is um, something that's, that's I feel last per minute yeah I, I feel that the uh, maybe not the pressure but the duty mm. uh, a stand-up crowd deserves to have a laugh every 15, 30 seconds a minute if you're going to really stretch something out a minute and a half and then it better be a banker as they sure. say here uh, in the podcast 
I can, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, fanny around a little more, and I can read articles and then pick things out of the articles. Because sure. the way news is written is what makes me laugh so hard. Because they'll say, you know, Silvio Berlusconi uh, isn't guilty. Sources say or some mm-hmm. nonsense with where all the lies are in the media. You know, sure. the, the, all the vagaries and all the all the bullshit they just try to sell uh, when there's no truth to anything that's in the paper or on TV. And that's okay. what makes me laugh. So, and that, and guy, someone, and that guy, yeah. And one nervous chuckle from the second row. <laughs> Everyone else, really? It's not vetted? No. And, uh, it's vetted by giant corporations to make sure we're all slaves. A, a lot of... <laughs> that's, that's what the news is for. A to lot make of you feel people, good about the shitty government. Go on, sorry. <laughs> that's okay. Government great according to government survey. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, let, well let's, no, let's, let's, let's follow that thought. Do you feel that you have a responsibility as an artist to explore politics, to explore what's going on. Do you, is, that, is that something you've thought about or is that a natural part of how you in, engage with the world? I think it's a natural part and I feel like I have the responsibility. I don't feel like every comic has the responsibility, uh, okay. but I feel like if you can, you should. And if, you, if you're good at it, you could. Uh, my favorite comics were like uh, Richard Pryor and George Carlin, Bill Hicks, uh, Lily Tomlin, whatnot. And in they're all in their various ways uh, are political, whether it's on a social level or whether they're talking about Doing like Richard Pryor's genius was like Charlie Chaplin's genius. He took the homeless and he took the impoverished and he took drug addicts and he gave them voices and lives uh, mm. that he put on stage. And Lily Tomlin too. Her characters are insane. Or, or you know, uh, I don't do characters as well as them. So I uh, like Hicks and Carlin uh, take the dialectic of how things are spoken. Uh, what was Bill Hicks' joke? If you're so pro-life. Uh, we're talking about the people who are anti-abortion. Uh, if you're so pro-life, why don't you link arms around a cemetery? You know what I mean? Yeah, like put sure. your money where your mouth is, right? Like no more, nobody dies. Sure. Uh, and and uh, <laughs> the, yeah, was a, Bill Hicks was a genius that way. And he would say what he used to do in about uh, people wear crucifix around their neck because they're thinking of the Lord. He goes, isn't that like wearing a gun around your neck to remember JFK or whatever? Yeah. And you see Jackie on the street. Why are you wearing a gun around your neck? Just thinking about JFK, man. You know, like, yeah, yeah, why are you remembering the most horrible moment sure. of the Lord's life? You know? Sure. So those, I mean, those, those are two very distinct between the, the Hicks version of the political joke yeah. and the prior version. As you said, that's a really interesting analysis of prior to think that he, yeah, for the benefit of the listener, Greg has tilted his head as if to indicate, thank you, it was intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just read a book about him, but I, you know, I don't know if people were familiar with Richard Pryor's work of his stand-up here as they are in the in the movies because sure. he was such a big movie star. Um, but his stand-up work was a lot of uh, winos and junkies, uh, street hustler types. He grew up in a, um, a cat house in Peoria, Illinois, mm-hmm. and everyone around him was gangsters. And so the people that he does on stage are people that were never, never acknowledged in stand-up to have a voice. Homeless people. Sure. Uh, when do you see people do homeless people and make it really funny and give them voices and lives? And that's what I think was his genius. He was a superb actor and really sensitive, uh, as well as a crazed drug addict maniac. Uh, <laughs> and like I think with Hicks and Carlin, they're, they're just tr- brilliant semanticists and they have a conscience, uh, like Lenny Bruce or whatever. I think I, I try to have a conscience and I think that's where that information comes from. Like you asked me, do you, does every comic, do as a comic have the responsibility to do political humor if they can? Carlin stopped doing topical humor a few years in and made it big ticket items, as he called them. So rather than say, uh, Tony Blair lied, he would just say politicians. Or if rather than say Jesus or whatever, it would be the whole of, like George Carlin did the bit about people worship an invisible man that lives in the sky that judges everything you do, right? Like that's how he broke it down. Which applies to all religions. As opposed to taking out personal particular things in top and do you think that approach was to make it more archetypal to yes. make it more timeless more accessible to everybody absolutely he didn't have to change material i mean he did every year he was prolific but he didn't have to change the bit to change the names of those who are guilty because he'd stopped talking about specific people and started just general sure. giant swaths against morality um, one of his last specials was called Life is Worth Losing, right? Let me talk about how everybody should just die, right, for his entertainment. And um, uh, I think, yeah, he opened up the field a lot more. I can't do that as well as him. I mean, I'm striving. I'm, we're trying to evolve, you know, but yeah. because the podcast is so week by week, I tend to live in the news more. And, and presumably the podcast has changed the, uh, the way that you approach comedy, has it? Because you, you are now given an outlet. Do you find that... 
I mean, obviously, there's certain positive things from that outlet that you you can explore ideas on stage without the pressure necessarily to be funny. I mean, are there all, is there any uh, element to which the fact that you're constantly producing and you, among among many very productive comedians, are producing an enormous volume of material through through the podcast? It's not just chat; it's actually focused on you know you do film podcasts like uh, yeah. one about with Nail and I that you can right. say, okay, put the movie in now, and now we'll talk about it. Yeah. You you're you're producing an enormous volume of material do you find that that actually satisfies any any of the the performative urge in you do you feel like you do less gigs in a week that you're podcasting a lot because you're you're already putting all your stuff what an interesting question uh it it certainly sets up a uh yeah it certainly sets up that uh that aspect because you know i always thought that stand-up was the most direct way to communicate with the audience. You and I were talking before the show, and Stu was a street performer, and he was saying that coming to the stand-up stage, uh, I'll put words in your mouth, but this is in essence what you told me, was that there's on the street there's the most communication because there's no barrier there's no stage there's no lights there's no mics you're right up in people and they're right up in you and you're asking them for money directly and they're giving it to you and they're watching and I understand that and I found that I thought stand-up was the most direct way to communicate because it's it's you the mic and the people and you're really you know there but the podcast is even more direct because people not just the people listening live on the night because people are listening with earbuds in or -hmm. while they're making tea or driving It's a one, it's a phone conversation. It's that intimate. It's like being on the phone with someone. And so I find that that's the most, I found that's more direct. Yes, it's affected the way I do everything. And the the artistic uh, crisis that I'm having inside the dark black, uh, you know, oily pit that is my soul is right now creatively is trying to get my stand up to the podcast level and get the podcast to the stand-up level. Like, I want to be able to talk about the things I can talk about on the podcast on the stand-up stage and hit it as hard. But I find that the leeway that the podcast gives me that I don't have to deliver blasts of laughs every two seconds. And I do want to be funny in the podcast. I try to be funny as possible. It's finding that median and and making them too blend. Right now, I'm liking the podcast more than the stand-up. I feel like some of my material isn't quite where I want it to be but the podcast is right ahead of me all the time, and I'm always sure. trying to catch it. If, you, if that makes any sense, absolutely. So le- <laughs> certainly not funny. <laughs> that okay. could be clear. We don't have to be funny. We can ed- we can edit the laughs in. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to use another show. <laughs> Yeah, so this show was full. Yeah, some of them were. People actually turned up. I'm sorry if I sounded a bit desperate during uh, the Brendan Burns episode about wanting people to arrive. It was quite early days in the festival, and I was completely freaking out about whether or not people would. Um, That's classic Goldsmith there. Sorry if I'm desperate. Sorry. Uh, I hope I'm not too ingratiating for you to like me. Um, But the the Edinburgh audiences were wildly up and down in number, and I I think when I released released the uh, the Brendan episode, uh, I I was properly... Uh, flipping out but uh, thanks for bearing with me thank you for all the hears on Twitter uh, sorry for being needy as uh, Mr Matthew Crosby correctly pointed out uh, I just feel like it's been a long time since we talked my fault um, I've got a new Twitter game for you if you're interested um, hashtag historical comedians or possibly I thought I mean we're going to do historical comedians I thought we could do hashtag fits of historia that I think that's a bit seudy. It's a horrible pun, not in a good way. Let's do hashtag historical comedians. Uh, the game is to riff on the name of an existing comic with their historical counterpart. So you could have George the Third Carlin, to think of a quick bad example. Let's let's not do names of kings with letters after them. That's a bit easy. Um, but you could have uh, Russell Brank uh, after the medieval Brank or Scold's Bridal that uh, many of you will be familiar with having grown up, as I did, in the shadow of a medieval castle. Um, You can do better than those two shabby attempts, I'm very sure. So hashtag historical comedians and tweet them to me at ComComPod. And do me a favour, Twitter people, as well as all the the other favours you do me. Um, If you like the shows and you fancy telling the world on Twitter, as many of you do, do include the Twitter name of the guest as well. I'm going to start including them in this blurb to make it easier for you. Greg, for example, is the very easy to remember, at Greg Proops. Um, I just think it's nice to include them in your feedback. Many of you do already but it saves me retweeting the praise at that person and clogging up the internet. <laughs> so do me a favour, at Comcompod and at the name of the guest if you've enjoyed it, if you've got anything to say to them. It's, it's nice for them, I guess, to know that it was worth their free time. None of them get paid. They, they get paid about as much as I do from this podcast. So nice to, to thank them online if you'd like. 
And speaking of thanks, I've got a little treat for you here to, to thank you for putting up with all the self-promotion uh, and all the rest of the, the bobbins that goes along with the world of podcasting. If you join or have already joined the mailing list or the Facebook group, then as a little thank you, uh, you can get a cheeky early listen of the frankly sensational Tony Law episode that I'm, I'm not going to release on the podcast until later in the year. You just can't miss this one. It, I mean, you won't miss it because I will release it eventually. But if you want it sooner rather than later, and I know that a lot of you are starving bastards, it's there in all its unedited glory. The bare minimum of chat from me, no plugging, no Twitter nonsense, just one incredible comic revealing his innermost thoughts in an interview that you will see as a genuine first for this show. I'll say no more about why, but you get stuck in. That'll be a streamable link available to anyone who joins or has joined the mailing list uh, or who joins the Facebook group, which uh, which I will, for a time at least, set to private. So uh, if you're in the gang, we've got about 500 people on Facebook uh, already, so you guys get to stream it, and all you need to do for that is join the group. That is enough stuff for now. I mean, I've barely said anything about Greg. What is there to say about Greg Proops? It's all in here. He's just got a brain the size of a planet. He's, he's absolutely wonderful. So let's get back to hearing what he has to say. So I, I wanted to talk about your, your style. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of, um, uh, there's an awful lot of elements we can talk about, about your style on stage from your, uh, from the affectation of your speech, the way that you, I, I was really, I was really, I was really tickled by how you, uh, you, you tell a story and I don't know how, I don't know the correct English to describe this, but instead of saying, uh, you know, we sat down, you'll say, so we sit down yeah. and you know, you've got these little sort of tweaks and yeah. I was wondering if you could sort of tell I us goes. a bit about that. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really a sort of attractive and it just makes me giggle to listen to. Yeah. Where, where did that come from? Was that a decision you made or is that just something that's part of your, your inner hipster? Yeah, there's that. And I think it's evolved over the years and uh, I've become more and more comfortable with it. I really feel like my friend Jeff Davis uh, always makes fun of me because um, we were in Illinois and we we're going through a place called Skokie. And uh, he goes, uh, what town is this? And I went, Skokie. And, he, and so he's forever made fun of me. And he goes, really? You have to pronounce words that way? And I said, yeah, it's called having a personality and being original. Yeah. Um, uh, Dean Martin and Bing Crosby. Are, Bing Crosby was from Spokane, Washington. No one in Spokane, Washington talks like this. You know? Okay, okay. Like he made it up, right? Sure. Cary Grant's from Bristol. If you've ever been to Bristol, no one goes, <laughs> oh my God, you're the most beautiful girl. You know, like, so I think it's up to you to make up your personality. And... Um, when did that happen? I'm getting images of you, 14 years old, writing on your pencil case. Well, I mean, I've, I've like always lent that way. I, 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 my, I think my high school English teacher made fun of me for the way I was pronouncing words. And I thought, you know, uh, fuck it, I'm going to do this. And, and then uh, I want to make it more entertaining, which is why I always think of like, uh, yeah, we sits down and he comes over and she pitches up and this and that. Uh, and also the hipster lingo, like I will say, I think the other night I said cat, this cat did this thing. And then I said yeah. to the audience, I mean a person, not a cat. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, um, I, I dig it. You know, I just, I just feel like you have to, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like you have to, um, talk in that. That's how I want to do it. I mean, I wouldn't push it on anyone else, but uh, that's how I'm going to do it. There was a comic named Lord Buckley, and Lord Buckley didn't really tell jokes. He told long uh, um, allegorical stories, and he would do the Marquis de Sade, and his Marquis de Sade was the bad rapping of the Marquis de Sade. Uh, or his Jesus. He does the story of Jesus and the apostles, mm -hmm. but he calls Jesus the Naz, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. he says, and then the Naz took all the uh, uh, apostles down to the... And, and he, he spoke... Lord Buckley put on a black English voice, right? So, so Lord Buckley spoke like this, right? And he wore a monocle and a pith helmet and had a cigarette and a tuxedo. <laughs> and would go, uh, and then Naz took the boys down to look out and he said, dig infinity and they dug it, right? Like, like, like that's how he did it. And he said the power and majesty of that, of black language was captivating to him and that that's why he started to do his act that way. Okay. Uh, and, and I feel the same way, like the power and majesty of that kind of way of speaking of a literary way of speaking, to me is more seductive than using a straight up uh, verbiage that a stand up. It's not as clear. Sure. Uh, it's maybe it's a harder sell. I don't know, but uh, for me, it's more fun, and I can only. And it is. There's there's an element to which I think it switches on the audience as well because they yeah. know they've got to come up to meet your to meet your level. Well, you want to make them listen, right? Uh, you want to make them listen, and and also, you know, I find that books are more instructive than you know. Than anything else, and I, I, so I'm always stealing from authors, you know. Okay, can you 
Can you give us an example of something? Well, I mean, there was a, a, a in the Jessica Simpson routine from years ago, the aforementioned one that was so hilarious. Uh, <laughs> I, I said she has a thought, and I go, you can hear her. What was it? You could hear the blood pounding through her ears like cannibal drums along the Orinoco. Now, I wrote that line, but there was another one. You could fairly hear the steam singing from her nose. And that's a line I lifted wholesale from Cormac McCarthy. It's okay. <laughs> when they're boiling someone over a fire, he says you could see the steam singing out their nose. Okay. And I thought, that's an outstanding line. I'm having sure. that. And I'm putting that right into a comedy routine about a stupid person. And that, so there's no way to know where it came from and no way to reference. You know what I mean? Uh, Absolutely. And I don't think it's stealing when it's, when it's lit. Um, Genius is steel, you know. It's a, a, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not justifying the lifting it. I just feel like using stuff from literature, I'm trying to lift the verbiage that I'm doing. Sure. Um, when I see people get up there, I mean, I swear too much, and that's the problem, and so that's partly why I say kittens and stuff on the podcast, because <laughs> I, I find that in my stand-up, I really swear too much, and it gets in the way of being intelligent, but it's a hard habit to break. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, understandably. Um, you were... It seems to me there's an interesting dynamic between you as someone who is known for impro, certainly in this country. I don't know if that's that's true of your reputation sure. in, in the States as well. You're known for improvising. You clearly improvise a lot. But you also have this kind of the literary collage. It's, it seems like a really interesting smashing together of those two ideas of the ability to just go off on one and, and speak your, your attitude and your opinion and also to, to sort of sew into it all of these literary illusions. That's not really a question, I realise. But <laughs> no, but it's, it's something I strive to do, Stu. I mean, I, I, I feel like the one element I want to add is a little bit of vivid imagery, and I want to add a little poetry. And I find that at my worst, I'm bass, and I just do knob gags and go for the easy shit. And then uh, at my best, I'll, I try to paint a picture. Uh, a friend of mine gave me a very good compliment after my little special I did in LA, and he said, you're like, what if Raymond Carver was funny? And uh, mm. I said, that's really nice of you to say. He said, because you do these little characters. When I talk about the pizza one, I don't know if you saw it the other night, and I said, I, I push his, I, I was in Bring Bring, and I meet the, meets the proprietor, and uh, Lonnie, and he's wearing a wife beater, a gold chain, he has a Fu Manchu mustache, he's got a USMC Semper Fi tattoo, and his face looks like it was on fire, and someone put it out with a bicycle chain dipped in oil. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he has other more horribly drawn tattoos, because later I was understand he was briefly in the Marine Corps, and then uh, was the guest of several penal institutions in the state of California, where I, I gather he received the tattoos from men he was on a more intimate basis with. And yeah. so I'm trying to like paint a description of things, but still sure. make it funny and keep people there. And, um, and that description has never been written down. No, I wouldn't write it down. Uh, I just, uh, I've tried to say it a thousand times and make it gooder each time. Uh, and, uh, do you mean in terms of saying it on stage or saying it off yeah, stage? Yeah, yeah. If there's a better, no, no, on stage and try to, and try to fix it on stage. Um, and do you do all of your, your writing on, do you do the thinking in bed or wherever and yeah. the writing on stage, the actual yeah, writing? Yeah, almost always. Uh, sometimes I'll sit down and write something out if it's really funny or if it pops into my head okay. fully formed. Um, my wife gave me a great line the other day, uh, and I've been using it this week. Because it's Scottish people here because your complexion so when you see young Scottish people their complexion is really beautiful and then you see older Scottish people and I said it my line was it looks as like Prometheus like they've been staked to a hill for the last 25 years with, a, with, a, with an eagle eating their liver out uh, and her line was next to Norway Scotland does leathery better than any country in Europe and <laughs> see you gotta laugh now and then, so that, yeah, I not, thought that was a really funny line Scots, yeah, I, yeah. I thought it was a funny line and um, yeah. uh, I, I was just that uh, use of imagery as well, something I'd like to I'd like to quote one of your lines here from a from a, a stand-up album. I think it was from Proops Digs In, which was uh, you were just describing Britney Spears, and you yeah. said Britney was like Liza Minnelli reaching over Barishnikov's cock for a line of coke at Studio Fifty Four. <laughs> Which, which is a fantastic, incredibly erudite and yet base image. And you're telling me that you didn't sit and write that. That no. just came out of you on stage. I, I made up that whole album, the Proops Digs In one. Yeah. It, it was a release party for an album I'd done called Elsewhere. And then we put out, and we said, well, let's record this album. And I had two very good comedians come in, Dana Gould and Laura Keitlinger. And I got up and made up that whole album on the night. There's a whole bit about you Tom made, Jones. You made up the whole album on the night. Yeah. Because I was going to ask about that album because the... Um, 
there are moments in that album where you, or there's a moment where you say, okay, I'm going to take a break now, enjoy these comedians. And I was thinking, right. what? This is very clever. Is this some sort of guerrilla tactic that you've recorded an album on a regular night or something? That- well, it was a release party for another album. So I, in order to release the album, you know, I had these other comics come in and do sets. So I got up and one bit I had written, I think the bit about a, 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 a president, as, as the former president of Iran, Ahmadinejad, when he said there were no gays, in, Amer- in, in, in his country, I don't know if you remember when he came to the UN, and he, yeah. he was in America yeah. and he said, you have gays in America, you have homosexuals, we don't have them in Iran. And I said, you invented poetry and dessert. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're telling me someone 3,000 years ago didn't go, this Shiraz just isn't ready. Um, <laughs> that one I had written before. Sure. But the, okay. the bit about uh, uh, Wolverine fighting uh, uh what was it? Who is it? It was. Uh, it's Wolverine fighting James Bond. That's right, James. Because Hugh Grant and um, uh, uh, Daniel Craig were in a Broadway play together, and yeah, and I said <laughs> they should have called the play what we all wanted them to call it, which is Wolverine versus James Bond. Fuck yeah. whatever the name of this piece of arty crap was. Let's get to the heart of the matter. And then uh, the, a phone went off in the audience, and Hugh Jackman in character went, "Hey, turn your phone off." And, uh, and then there'd been this big article about it on, yeah. in the Huffington Post. And I was like, how is that impressive? We as comedians, you are a street performer. You have to handle huge crowds of people, sometimes swaths of drunks. And I'm like, because he came out of character for two seconds and put someone down, we were supposed to be blown out of the sure. fucking water. So it turned into this epic routine about, you know, uh, you know, we have to do this every night. Yeah. When a drunk guy from Glasgow gets up and goes, rah, 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 you know, you have to put that insurrection down. Yeah. Yet and you have to stay are, in character or whatever. Right, yeah. you know. But actors are given so much credit if they're able to even blink out of character or whatever, mm. like acting so fucking hard or whatever because you have to wear a hat and pretend to be French or something. <laughs> people are like, oh my God, how can people do it? It's like, well, it's easy. Someone brings you tea and shit. It's pretty fucking easy. <laughs> Run, running, <laughs> running through a lot of your, uh, a lot of your work is, <laughs> is uh, a a commentary on yourself as well as the, uh, the direction you're taking with the material. There's often a, a like a literal commentary like, uh, and again, just to quote a line, you said you called George Martin a dick face and then you stopped and you go, yes, I called George Martin a dick face without a punchline. That's how that thin ass premise hangs over the precipice. <laughs> and and that, that's obviously sort of improvised, I guess, on, yeah. on the night as well. Um, but uh, I think that's fascinating that as whilst this, it's almost a stream of consciousness with... Um, uh, with side notes and with uh, with notes in the margin and stuff, this this stream. Yeah, I, I, that's what I aspire to do. I think when I, if you see me and I'm at my best, I'll be commenting on every other joke that I make. My friend Matt Weinhold said to me years ago, "Your style is this: you tell one joke and then you spend the next ten minutes telling the audience why they weren't smart enough to get that joke." <laughs> uh, and I think when I'm at my funniest, I'm in full flow. I'm not thinking, and it is stream of consciousness. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to get to this week here in Edinburgh. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just getting off the ground after like four nights. So mm. if you've come to see me so far, sorry. Uh, it'll, it'll get gooder. I hope uh, as the evening as the week wears on it's a matter of getting loose and being comfortable with what I'm doing and I'm not quite yet for some reason on that night I had four or five things I wanted to talk about like mm-hmm. that that uh, Daniel Craig play and then the George Martin thing simply because two nights before I had been high watching the Beatles anthology series on TV and it was yeah. the most horrible painful there's a lot of material yeah. about that on the album <laughs> And I know I haven't seen that and I know almost nothing about it, but I feel like I really have the inside story now. You know, like the Beatles hated themselves as much as the Who hated themselves at the time. I I didn't even know the Who hated each other. So, you know what I mean? I felt like it was educational to a certain extent Uh, as well. Well, we, of course, we strive to educate. Yeah, the Who took took four separate cars from the beginning. No, the the Beatles one was hilarious because they did it in the 90s and John's gone and George and Paul are not getting along and they're all wearing really bad sweaters and it's just a fantastic show. Sure. Yeah, they just argue in kitchens. It's the whole fucking anthology, if anyone's ever seen it. And then we had the idea to do Sgt. Pepper, and George goes, no, we didn't. And you're like, Jesus Christ, you guys. It's like being with a bitchy couple. It's fantastic. You know? <laughs> when, you're, uh, when, you're, when you're in that full flow, when you're in that stream, do you find that there are ever consequences to things that you say? Do you ever say mean things about people or, or things that have a negative element and then find yourself thinking, 
oh, you know, that could hurt that person's feelings. Yes. Occasionally I do. Occasionally I will on the podcast. And uh, in the podcast, if I say something too libelous or horrible or just scathingly awful that was out of line, I'll have them cut it out. And I've done it a few times because I'm sensitive to that as well. But I remember doing a bit years ago about supermodels. That'll give you an idea how old the bit was. (laughs) Uh, Like 94, 95, and I was at the comedy store. And I had a line about Claudia Schiffer where I called her a Nazi heifer. And uh, people are a little sensitive about it now evidently I thought it was hilarious at the time uh, and Kevin Day I remember said to me God that line is funny and I thought I went home and I went Ooh, is that line too mean and then I thought no it's not she has every request to defend herself and she's in the public eye and she just I mean not that supermodels are the biggest grandest target they were that year um, that's why I try to aim a little higher and uh, someone like George W. Bush or Obama or uh, Cameron or, or Blair or any of the heads of the corporations are so full on targets for comedy derisiveness abuse and everything else you can dish out at them because they're running the world and they're pulling the strings and therefore they deserve to be fucked with in every way because they have every recourse to defend themselves uh, I would never make fun of a homeless person for being poor or anything like that Mm. Uh, that's where my boundary is. People have been talking a lot about taste lately and shit like that. And, uh, that kind of gets on my wick. But, uh, uh, I, I find that for me, that's where, that's where the boundary is. If someone can't defend themselves, you mustn't, uh, take advantage, uh, and make fun of them. For someone uh, do you, like, do you see that in comedy? Do you see that in, in other of your yeah, contemporaries yeah, yeah. or newer yeah, acts? Do you yeah. see people and, make fun of the homeless for being poor and shit? No, yeah. I don't find that funny at all. <laughs> is there, but it's not something I would do you know I'm not going to get sure. on a high horse about it but if you can make it funny if you can make anything funny as they say but I just don't think it's a great topic why not use your energy for something else I mean I'll be honest a lot of 30 something guys I say particularly in the United States talk about onanism to the almost the exclusion of everything else in their act sure and that, that happens here too oh buddy I mean self love is such a topic for young men and I always want to say to them do you realize there's a bunch of couples in the audience and that after a certain age um, people aren't masturbating all day long and that there are other things to fucking talk about and that if you're over 30 you really owe it to yourself to crack a fucking book and look at the world and shit like that that's what gets me is when I see guys up there who are well past the age of talking if you're 19 and it's your first act, I get it. Sure. I get it. You don't have a lot. You know, you don't have a world yet. But by the time you're in your 30s, if you're still talking about watching porn all day, that's mm. just like, no, dude. Pull that shit together. Just going to go nip off and delete my back catalog. <laughs> <laughs> Again, if you can make it hilarious. There's two or three people who are, you know, unbelievably filthy and they're scabrous and they are hilarious. And then, mm. then I think that works for them. But for me, it's just not my... Do you think you've turned into the comedian that you expected to become? No, I, I didn't. I didn't know what I wanted to expect to become. I would have liked to have probably been more like Carlin because I think his wordsmithery and his evisceration of premises is exquisite. And I think he was more like a playwright toward the end, especially and boiled concepts down. And he was his ability to. Uh, uh, literally choose the right word for every single word of the sentence. There's no wasted motion with him. And I find that I'm garrulous. Uh, there's a lot of superfluous you know, dialogue, verbiage. Uh, when I'm having trouble or trying to grab a premise and throw it down, I'll talk around it for a year. Whereas I don't think he ever would. He'd go right to the heart of the matter. One okay. time I saw him and uh, he goes, I haven't memorized this bit yet. And he goes to the audience, I don't improvise, I memorize. And he took out a piece of paper and he read the bit off the piece of paper and it played. It played just like if he had... And to me, that's like... When you're at that point where what you're writing on the piece of paper... Is exactly what you say. Yes. Yeah. Because you know you're coming. I mean, that's not how it works with comics. We have a note on a piece of paper and it says, corn (laughs) (laughs) or radio slash morning time slash mother. And that yeah. means something to us. And then those signifiers are what we kick into the routine. And some people do the routine word for word, syllable for syllable, pause for pause every night. Some people extrapolate within it. But we rarely are, would be able to write, read off a piece of paper and get the exact laughs. Almost like musical notation, isn't yeah, it? The very much the rhythm, so. the pauses. Yeah. Well, I know. That's what I, I, mm. When I was watching him, I was like, oh my God, you're like, you know, you're like Mozart or something. You know where to put the 16th note and you know where to hold for half a second and you know where to... And when I saw him do it, I would have liked to have been like that, but I don't think I'm meticulous enough. The laziness of improv and the thrill of the improv is too much for me to resist. I've, in fact, years ago, I did a gig with Joan Rivers and I had the pleasure of working with her uh, on a... Um, some crappy TV and um, 
And then <laughs> I, I did a talk show with her and I interviewed her. And I realized at the end of that that her sense of humor is probably more like mine than anyone else, which is that she's just kind of openly vicious, right? Like she'll go, sure. oh my God, I hate lesbians. You know, like just oh, just yeah. so horrible, you know. Uh, if there's les- if the crowd's all lesbians, I fucking hate it. Get some queers in, you know, and uh, no one here laughs. But that's the kind of, yeah. uh, <laughs> like Joan Rivers, was re- here was my favorite joke. And she could barely get this out. And this is what makes me love comedians. She was probably 70 something when she told this joke. Um, I, when I was a little girl, I wrote a letter to Hitler. I said, there's a couple in Teaneck, New Jersey you should look in on. And the, the, that's fucking genius, right? That's like, it's a Hitler joke. It's a joke about sure. her. It's, it's just so... And she could barely tell it because she was laughing so hard at, at, that she knew what she'd written. Sure. And Bob Newhart, once I interviewed him, and he was doing a joke about the submarine captain one, and he could barely get the line out. And he had written the joke maybe 50 years before. He literally was pissing himself laughing at a line he had written 50 years before <laughs> that he was going to repeat to us that I'd heard a thousand times. And to me, that was just joy, you know? Um, <laughs> I'd like... Uh... Sorry, every so often, Greg, I will do a little, a little pause that's slightly too long at the end of something you've said, and that's because I'm planning to put one of my little stings in there that you know, the podcast fans will know and they can tell. I love it. But I, it's happened a couple of times that I've uh, noticed you laughing, and I've thought, oh, it looks like I don't know what to say next. I totally do. I was just pausing for the recording. <laughs> what I'm going to say next is... I thought you were going to join in. What I'm going to say next is um, we've, uh, we've got some opportunity for you to ask questions, if that's all right with uh, the proof dog. Yes, please. Yep. Um, if you would like to, please feel free. We normally find that there's... You mean stop their silent judging? Is it <laughs> finally participate. You can silently judge and ask a question at the same time. I'll just repeat that for the sake of the recording. Uh, the, are you going to rejoin the newly started up uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway? Uh, not that I know of. They uh, didn't ask me for the first one, and we'll, we'll see what happens with the second one. We don't make that decision as artists. Uh, that's, a, that's a TV producer decision, so that's where that one's at. I think we can feel the uh, emotional resonance of that as well in the room. Those things. I mean, you know, I, I, I did it for 14 years, and I still work with all of them, so it's, it's not, yeah. you know. That's, it was interesting before you were talking about how lazy, you said how lazy improv is and, and how thrilling improv is. Well, I mean, the making it up like on the night, I think, is the exciting part, the free falling and trying to get something out that's coherent. That's the fun part for me. Um, but there is the awesome laziness of not having to learn lines. I know. You don't have to write jokes or anything. No. You just go out there and go, hey, let's have a household object. And someone says, you know, butter dish. And you're like, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and then everyone thinks you're clever because you remembered butter dish, you know. So. <laughs> is, there, is there some, <laughs> is that you obviously love it. Is there some aspect of it whereby you love it so much that you feel you can kind of, you can see its faults and, you know. Oh, of course. I get to make fun of it because I've made a career out of it. So, uh, I, it's like being in the army. You get sure. to bitch about being in the army. Uh, no, I, I think my, my favorite two things anyone's ever said about improv are why not prepare something funny? And uh, I think that's funny <laughs> and completely valid. Uh, and uh, yeah, and I can't think of the other one. I don't know. <laughs> that's particularly appropriate. And what sort of, what sort of rules did you play? I know improv, I, I've done very little improv as, as it's called in the States. Yeah. And, uh, but I understand that there's kind of rules to it, like, you know, say yes and, and those sorts of things. Yeah, there's rules. I mean, uh, Jim Sweeney, who uh, uh, um, was in the Comedy Show Players for years, and maybe one of the more superb improvisers I've ever worked with, uh, and dead funny at all times. Um, his, what he said, I think, is true the most. He goes, you learn all the rules of improv, and then, that's, and then it's in the breaking the breaking sure. them you can break them properly so I learned them all I learned how to play all the games and all that jazz I have no interest in rules whatsoever on stage or, or I mean like when I play uh, I play with the comedy store players or I play with uh, uh, Steve Steen and Stephen Frost have a little group and I go out with those guys and, and they're like you're always fun because you just come in anywhere and do anything and it's like well it's a show mm-hmm. if you want to see process go to a fucking class if you want laughs come and see a show that you paid money for I mean, that's my feeling. So I, I never want to show process on stage. I, I want it to be the end result of... And, and even if I'm wanking around and trying to get to something funny, I hope that people can realize that, like, what did James McNeil Whistler, when, when he was sued, but who, did, who did he sue? Ruskin, the critic? Because Ruskin said all you did was put a fucking swatch of paint on the, on the mm. canvas, and he said, it took a lifetime to learn to where to put that slot. So, so that's what we're trying for is the, you know, the comprehensive weight of the 700 years of my career bearing down on each show like a hideous, hideous avalanche. <laughs> uh, Full of danger and delight. <laughs> Anyone else? Any other questions? With useful sort of jumping off points? If not, I'm going to... Oh, there's, over there. Do you 
No, I won't be on Whose Line. Thank you for asking. <laughs> no, go on. Sorry, sorry. Oh, that's Ooh. really that's a very interesting question. I'm just going to re- repeat yes, that. Do uh, do people send you in gags, and if they do, do you use them? Um, occasionally, uh, people do, um, but they tend to be not that funny. Uh, so no is the answer, and I wouldn't anyway, <clears throat> un- unless I was intended on sending them money. Rodney Dangerfield was a famous American comedian. You may remember him. And yo, uh, I don't get no respect. That's how he talked. And uh, he bought jokes from comics all the time, and people sent him one-liners because he was a one-liner comic. And he sent everyone that uh, gave him a joke fifty bucks or whatever. So he actually paid for it. But no, people will send me things and go like, "You should call your show Proops. I did it again." Or why don't you write a book called Everybody Proops? You know, that's the, some, we're kind of at that level sometimes. So I'm always like, thank you for your kind remarks. But I'm not going to repeat those or anything, except here. Do you, um, do you uh, have any problem with, um, I would imagine that you don't have any problem with anyone kind of plagiarizing or using your stuff. Has that ever been an issue? It sort of seems like it's so steeped in yourself and your identity. Yeah, and I think that's that the key, right? it would be impossible right? to... Yeah. Uh, Well, I mean, I know I've repeated these quotes before on different shows, but they're both true. Bill Hicks said, less jokes and more me. And Lenny Bruce said, I'm not a comic, I'm Lenny Bruce. Uh, And and prior, in this book I just read, someone said something about stealing his material. And I was like, no one could steal his material because no one could do it. If you read uh, a Richard Pryor routine, sometimes there's no jokes in it. It's just a character talking. And so there's no way to steal it. Because, you know, you need the jokes to, you need the punchlines. So, no, I'm not worried about it. I've had people plagiarize me, and I've probably accidentally plagiarized people before. And, you know, like George Harrison. (laughs) (laughs) Is Is there an element, I wonder, to which you're, because your audience is growing with you now through the, through the podcast I mean, and always has been I'm sure that, that you are cultivating a more specific audience for whom your your cultural literacy this has become a very complicated no, no, go question on. I'm um, loving this question yeah. <laughs> I'm considering it as we're going along here. yeah um, uh, so with the podcast you've got a more specific audience do you find that that audience is now they're kind of trained proofs fans I do and I think it's a uh it's been a function of learning it as it goes and that I was a complete surprise to me that it would even take off at all and that I think it's the new and more exciting way to communicate. Uh, um, I can reach 25, 35, 50,000 people a week with the podcast, which mm-hmm. I couldn't do. if I, And I play live all the time anyway. I play probably 200 and something dates a year. I, mm-hmm. I'm out literally all the time. I'm very rarely not playing. And... Um, but you can reach so many people that way. And the people, oh, we could argue, well, on TV, you can reach millions of people. Yeah, but on TV, um, what's that story by Kurt Vonnegut, Harrison Bergeron, you know, where he has to wear the chains so he's equal with everyone else? Uh, TV makes sure that everything is just about as funny as this yeah, so that okay. it's not too fucking funny. Uh, I mean, if the idea that you'd be allowed to say the really, really truthful, pithy thing on TV is, sure. nah, it's not going to happen. It's changing, isn't it? For, for I think for a lot of comedians, obviously, with the, in the case of Louis C.K. putting out his own album yeah. online, the internet has radically changed it. Mm-hmm. But you, you often hear about that in, in the context of people like Louis um, making money by cutting out the, the, distribu- the distributors. Rather. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to hear that there is... Um, that there's almost there's also a creative element to the fact that you now have control. People who podcast and a lot of stand-ups are starting podcasting do it for precisely that reason yeah. that you have complete control over it, and it's almost like having a stand having the control that you would have at a stand-up performance on TV. It is, and that was where stand-up always uh, I thought had it creatively over everything else that I've ever done because. No one censors you, believe it or not, uh, in stand-up comedy clubs. You're really allowed to say what you like, other than starting a bloody riot or something. Uh, and with the podcast, it's I live and die with my own words, right? Sure. If I fuck it up, it's my fault. And no one but, it's no one's responsible but me, and I take that responsibility. With, with the success of the podcast, people may have, well, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but have people approached you about doing the podcast for TV? And would you be interested in converting it? They have not, and yes, I probably would in some version, as long as it could be as close to the real deal as possible. Sure. I talk a lot on my podcast about, uh, I don't know if this, I'm trying to not presume everyone's heard of it. Uh, uh, for some reason, there's a lot of catch things that have happened organically over the, to- over the last couple of years since I started. Um, food, always. Uh, drugs. Uh, drinking um, uh, funk music and glam music from the 70s are big things with me uh, Negro League baseball has turned into a huge thing I talk about history a lot uh, books uh, this this week we're probably going to talk about the Observer came out with the 100 most essential books of all time list okay. which we're going to I think go through and kind of 
talk about those books. And then Spike Lee had his essential films list. I don't know if you saw that on the internet because he teaches film at NYU. So those are kind of open topics for me. Films and literature are always. Um, So I find that a lot of young people, because uh, this is where the grooviness is, um, young people don't care about tally at all. Uh, It's on their phone. It's on their computer, whatever. They don't don't go, oh my God, I've got to get home Wednesday night at eight to see, you know, fucking whatever schlocktastic sure. thing is on television. Uh, oh, who's got the boners on? And this, this week it's a very special episode. <laughs> and um, so uh, I, th- I find that my cultural literacy, which I didn't think anyone was interested in, has sort of permeated into my show and that my audience now, I, I have people come and bring me like Ohio players, singles. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it really does. A, a, if, it, if you're in your teens or 20s, you go, I listened to that song you told me to listen to. I talked about David Bowie sure, and a crappy yeah. David Bowie video last week. And people are writing me going, I watched the fashion video yeah. and it's hilarious. You know, like, so stuff that I think is just ephemera. Um, and then I said, my wife says, you know, you have to understand not everybody knows what you're talking about. So sometimes I'll really break it down. Yeah. Sometimes I want a reading list that comes with right, the episode. Right. Yeah. And I think, well, I, am I breaking it down too much? And then I have to remember, no, this is 101. This is the introductory mm. class. Uh, a lot of times I start in the middle, but I, I do feel a responsibility to kind of, I mean, I, I, if I bring up like some arcane shit like Tacitus or something, then you have to kind of give some sort of background. You can't just presume that every, I'm not Jeremy Paxman. I'm not here to bludgeon you to death with my sure. intellect. Uh, supposedly we're going to get laughs at some point. Not, you know, today, but on other days when... It was a long, boring answer to that question. Yeah, no, very, no, it was... Very okay. astute question, but I mean... And it's the freedom of it. It's really the freedom of it. And I'm the video I did is going to be like Louie. It'll be it'll be on a, a thing called Chill.com, and you'll be able to buy it for four dollars and ninety nine cents. Amazing. And I was much rather do that than uh, than a TV one, you know. And I <clears throat> one, I'm not going to get offered a TV one, and two, uh, that the, the, there's no, you know, I got to do exactly what I wanted on the day. It's down to me. It's down to me. Do you have any concern that the world of podcasting for comedians is taking off so much so that it's, you know, it could eat itself, that it could be swamped, that there's so many people now, so many <clears throat> comedians have their own show and that there's now such a wide breadth of choice? Or do you feel that you're in at the ground floor? You're, you could have got there early enough to have established yourself. I was lucky enough to start like two and a half years ago and I think I got in just before the major flood started. Uh, it, it had been going a few years at that point, and obviously Mark Marin and Ricky Gervais and all, all, you know, all the, the pod fathers uh, had started the ball rolling. But I feel like I got in right before uh, everybody and their brother started doing it. Whether that diminishes the pool or whether that makes it richer, I think is, is, remains to be seen. I do think this. I don't think it's going to get less popular sure. because I think the fact that we all have smartphones and that everyone's mobile device allows them to do this, the podcast thing immediately, it's way more accessible than even telly. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you're on your phone, downloading an audio program and listening to it, but there's no effort at all because mm-hmm. your phone's a little computer mm-hmm. now. And when, because we reached that, I did a podcast from 2001 till 2005 and <laughs> right. nobody, yeah, nobody fucking heard it, man. Because no one had phones then that, that got podcasts and no one didn't. That wasn't a big thing. There was like, download to your MP3 player, you know, yeah. for $1.99 and no one did it. Uh, and, that, and we were wildly overfunded then. We actually got paid then to do it. Uh, now it's basically a labor of love. But um, So no, I don't think it's going to get less popular. I think it's going to get more popular. And I think that uh, it's taken the place of what I think a lot of the people my age here would remember what radio used to be like uh, in the 60s and 70s mm. when it was way more eclectic and late at night there was a dude you would listen to or a woman you'd listen to who would play the obscure shit that they weren't playing during the daytime yeah. and I, I think that's what we're as podcasters are doing all of a sudden it's about personal things it's about things that other people aren't talking about um, no one on the news is ever going to say the government is evil and trying to kill you. That's never going to be the lead story. Uh, no one's ever going to say the oil companies are getting away with murder and that banks are ripping us off blind and that people are uh, pissing on the poor and that the world's upside down right now and that we never put anyone in prison who deserves to go in prison. You'll just never hear that on TV. No one ever says it. So I feel like I have the opportunity to say it. So God damn it, I'm going to say it. You know, and, uh, uh, I, does it make the world better? I don't know. You know, but uh, it makes me feel better. <laughs> Um, we've probably got time for just one or two more questions before we need to wrap up. There's a gentleman there. No, I won't be on whose line. <laughs> 
So Bush was uh, a gift to comedians. Uh, was it a problem? Was it problematic for comedians? Do you think when Barack Obama came in? Well, to answer your question, uh, the at, at the beginning of Bush, you remember, uh, in the first ten months of his reign, um, he was under a cloud, and that they were still talking about the. Uh, um, fact that the Supreme Court had flipped the decision over versus the state of Florida uh, to put him in basically post facto kind of putsch like uh, into, pres- into the presidency. Um, the week of 9-11, I bought Newsweek and Time magazine and the cover story on both was, is the Bush presidency legitimate? The week of 9-11, I have the magazines at home and they were talking about how if they'd had another day they could have flipped Justice Kennedy over and he would have voted against Bush and Gore would have been president right so then 9-11 happened and no one was allowed to say anything bad about powerful people and how awesome they are because of the way they protected us and um, yeah I'm being snotty and sarcastic about it Bush ran for re-election on Nothing. Look how I protected you from terrorism, even though he allowed the most egregious breach of terror in the history of the United States to happen. Um, Condoleezza Rice was national security advisor at the time. She became secretary of state. She wasn't fired for allowing the Pentagon to be dive bombed. She was elevated to a bigger position. So that's where they were coming from on all this. So the first four or five years of Bush, it was impossible to make fun of him because crowds would fucking... People had made up their mind that he was a a, a patriot and was saving the world. And you you experienced that, crowds just not buying the... New York City, I'm playing at Caroline's Comedy Club. I got on stage and the crowd there was a little, how shall I put this, touristy. Uh, No one was from New York City. They were all from other places in the United States where their belief systems were different, right? You know, Jesus rides a dinosaur and shit. And... uh, uh, you know, and guns are good and uteruses are evil, you know, you know, America. And uh, I got on stage and I think it was right when Schwarzenegger was running. And I said, uh, it's really funny that an Austrian, uh, I think I called him a Nazi loving, whatever. It was like a beer hall putsch joke, basically. An Austrian strongman rises to power and over a disaffected electorate. Da, da, da. And a guy in the front row went, no. <laughs> like, you're not allowed to say that. No, I disagree with you. Mm. I, I think he's great. And I think Bush is great. And so... Rather than fight with him, uh, and the crowd by this point is breaking into fucking factions, I got down on my knees on stage and said, let's do what no one's done in the last few years and agree to disagree. And I put my hand out and he (laughs) he shook hands with me very reluctantly. Then he fucked off about halfway through the show with his wife because he couldn't take my liberal poison anymore. And as he left the audience, the audience at this point had broken up into screaming, shouting, factions mm. and he got booed out of the room and then at the end of the show people were screaming there was no applause or laughter at the end <laughs> and and then half the crowd left and was furious and went and complained and the other half of the crowd waited to speak to me and I was scared to death I went in my dressing room and I had to uh, call my wife and I'm like you're never going to fucking believe what happened tonight's show and the, the manager of the room came in and went there's 85 people waiting to talk to you mm. <laughs> And they were all like, we've never been to a show like this in our life. It was amazing. And I thought, well, so, I know, because a lot of comics got off on saying that Bush was a gift to comedy because he was so stupid and all that shit. The first four years, it was a fascist fucking, you know, it was amazingly awful in the United States playing to American crowds because they were, and then, of course, uh, the re-election, when everybody realized that that one was rigged too, and then Katrina. And after Katrina, it was open field the last three years on Bush. And I made a lot more fun of Dick Cheney than I did of Bush, who uh, Dick Cheney, as you recall, was president. And, um, <laughs> but I found that here in, Brit- in Britain, when, when, uh, 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 when, you, when a Scottish person wins at tennis, they're British. Uh, <laughs> normally they're just Scottish. Uh, here in Great Britain, uh, you know, People didn't know who Cheney was. So my Cheney yeah. jokes, which killed in the States. Sure. I was playing in Aspen once, and uh, uh, Aspen is extraordinarily wealthy. Billionaires live up on the, here. The millionaires live below them, and then everybody else lives down Valley. Right? Like the Sultan of Brunei keeps a, a, a palatial manse in a, a, keeps a pile in, a, <laughs> in Aspen, right? Which he's never at. And uh, in any case, uh, I'm doing a gig there, and they had a comedy show for no reason. They used to have a festival, but this was just a regular comedy gig. And I went off on Cheney for about... 30 minutes at one point mm. uh, and I used to say something like what he would he would ascend on a staircase of negroes into a carriage made of babies and shit like that you know what I mean and uh, yeah you guys are all sensitive but you, you, you remember he was the head of Halliburton and Halliburton made all the money off the Iraq war and then Halliburton was responsible for the Gulf uh, spill the oil spill that, that killed 11 oil workers they just paid a $200,000 fine 
$200,000, right? That is nothing. That's like a nickel that they dropped. They literally make $200,000 in about a minute. And, uh, and, and then Dick Cheney was the one who said he wouldn't testify in front of the Senate, but you know, all the, all the things he did. And after about 20 minutes on Cheney, a rich person in the front row just went, the best heckle I've ever had. <sighs> Enough. <laughs> and I fell over laughing because they didn't go fuck you or stop it or anything. They just went, Enough. And this is a place where people have heated driveways so their cars will start up. Because they live high in the mountains and they're richer than you. And we, uh, we need to wrap up. But <laughs> I mean, how do you cope with, before we do, before we do, how do, you, how do you cope with that as a performer? Just to bring this back to your life as a comedian. When someone gives you that, what do you do? And, I mean, you're in a, in a, do you feel in a position of power? Is all you can do laugh? Well, I did. I had to because they were so rich because I was making fun of them for, you know, about their maids and every other thing. And they laughed at themselves and they, they took it. But I just thought at a certain point. And at that point, it was at the very end of the Bush administration. Bush was polling at about 22 percent and Cheney was polling at about 15. Mm. And I'm not kidding. These were the approval ratings they had. And I go, uh, Bush is polling at 22 percent. And I found you. I found the room of people that yeah. still thinks Bush was a great president. Yeah. So at the beginning, it was a little more difficult to make fun of Barack. But now, of course, now that the shit's at the fan, you know, and then everybody, oh, but you, you can't make fun of him. And it's like, of course you can. He's in power. I, I never bought that. I never bought that at all, that you couldn't make fun of him. Uh, my joke was uh, voting for Barack Obama was a profound experience for a lot of white people because it was like helping that black friend you don't have. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Greg Proops. Yeah, Mr. Stu Goldsmith. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. So that was Greg. Thank you to everyone that came to the live shows throughout Edinburgh at, at the Gilded Balloon, uh, and particularly anyone who asked questions. I frequently felt, was given cause to feel, that the questions people asked uh, suggested that my audience, uh, you people yourselves, were of a very high calibre. <laughs> you, you asked some very sophisticated questions, and it was frequently commented on by my guests, so good work, everyone. Thanks, of course, to Greg for coming on the show. I, I'd love to have him on again sometime. What a pleasure to talk to him. Um, I also heard from the press office at the Gilded Balloon that he had described this show after he was on it as not just another wanker talking about comedy and that is a quote i fully intend to use so thanks for that greg you can of course download greg's own podcast it's called the smartest man in the world it's available from all the usual places and with a vast array of different types of episodes as we said comedy shows film shows and of course greg's ruthless political analysis so uh, that's all available he's got a bunch of albums you can buy online do buy them they're just uh, the one he talks about that he recorded on the night the one with all the Beatles and the Who stuff in it it's just absolutely fantastic you find yourself as I was at the beginning of this episode just uh, struggling to comprehend how someone can just deliver fully formed chunks of what seem to be material but are yet so fluid that you think yeah he's he's just actually saying what he thinks really really worth getting stuck into I think Greg is I mean, I, yeah, I can say he's underrated as a comic because I don't think many people in the UK know just how good a comic he is. So get stuck into that. Tweet us at ComComPod and at Greg Proops if you'd like to involve Greg. And remember, for a sneak peek at Tony Law's episode that you can stream online, you can join the mailing list at ComediansComedian.com or the Facebook group, which you can find by searching for it on Facebook. I'll speak to you soon, frog killers. Thanks for listening. <laughs> The government is evil and trying to kill you.